Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Asad Mohana, Senior Director of Low-Carbon Solutions at NOV. As I'm sure many of you are aware, NOV is a technology-driven solutions provider for energy production. What you may not be aware of is the significant contribution that NOV is making to the low-carbon energy space. I'm excited to learn more about NOV's journey over that last 150 years of the company. So let's get started. Asad, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. If you would please share with me in the audience your background. And for those who don't know, introduce us to NOV. Yeah, well, uh, Joe, thanks for having me and uh, really excited to be on your show uh, and congratulations uh, on your podcast. Um, excited to talk about a, a topic that's pretty uh, dear to my heart. I got, I got to say, if uh, and I say this when I start a podcast, if you if you do see your uh, your listenership uh, nosedive after this show, I'll, I'll take full blame. It's uh, it's it's on me. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, I, I do, uh, I do want to give you a little bit of background on, uh, what I've done and a little bit on, on NOV. I've, I've started my career with the company about 15 years ago now, and, um, it was in the Middle East in our Dubai office straight out of school. Um, but before that, I had spent some time doing a few, few jobs here and there. Um, I did, uh, I worked as a mechanic, uh, for a couple of, uh, car manufacturers. Um, that was, uh, that was why I kind of went into mechanical engineering, kind of helped me pick what I wanted to go to also helped pay for my school, which uh, I'm sure my parents were thankful for. Um, and, uh, and I kind of, as I transitioned out of that, got into uh, sort of an option to pick an industry uh, after graduation and, and it was good times 2007 right before you know financial markets fell uh, but really it was it was a good year to get to get a job and so there's a lot of things going on oil and gas being being one of them and um, I had this opportunity to join a company called NOV and um, it was exciting because um, you know what our industry offers is a worldview of uh, energy, um, all while uh, really experimenting with cool tech, uh, a, a wide range of applications, um, and meeting a ton of people. And so that's, that's kind of what drew me in. 
um, started working in our downhole group with in, in wellbore construction or, or robot technologies. Uh, spent some time in, in the field. Uh, I also did some design engineering for a while. It was cool. It was, it was interesting because I got to see sort of both sides of the um, uh, of, of of the you know the business from an engineer standpoint. How you you know wh- why you design, how you design downhole equipment, and how it runs in the field, and kind of reiterate and improve. Uh, and that kind of taught me how to think. I mean, engineering at the end of the day was uh, just a problem-solving skill, no matter what the problem uh, was. And so uh, I enjoyed that for a while, then, then, then spent some time in Edmonton in Canada doing a bit more engineering. And, and as I gradually progressed, um, I picked more and more roles that were closer to uh, the business side of things. And it didn't happen swiftly. It was, you know, from field and design engineering to application engineering um, to sort of service management, kind of on the operation side, um, slowly transitioning towards uh, a bit of application uh, support, um, a bit of business development and account management. Uh, the more I got the chance to learn and sort of chase decision-making and why we're doing what we're doing and what drove activity uh, up and down, um, the, the more I got closer, closer to the answer of, of the why. why. Why are we doing this? this, this why, how, what moves this industry? Um, and so uh, fast forward a few years, uh, we've started this business uh, or this group here at NOV called Low Carbon Solutions. Um, we're, we're a small group of, of people that sort of work in the intersection of strategy, business development, and technology and sort of connect the dots between the three. Um, and sort of my, my, sort of my vision for where this group could end up is uh, being the, the support function and uh, paving the way into the energy transition, identifying what an oil and gas company can do in this in this massive space, um, and this emerging market for us is attractive because it's a it's a great opportunity, and uh, we think and over the last couple of years, uh, done a lot to identify strengths and skills that fit into this new world for us. Uh, and what we've realized is that it doesn't take a lot for us to sort of repurpose what we have and uh, and be a, a leading player in it. And, and as we'll talk, you and me today, Joe, about uh, some of the things we're doing, you know, ranging from um, wind, both onshore and offshore, some solar, we're working in carbon capture very heavily. Uh, we're doing geothermal, biogas and subsea mining. There's a, there's a lot of verticals for us that uh, range in maturity and readiness for commercialization, but definitely attractive in terms of what skill set we can bring to the table. And, and to me, this is an extremely exciting space because um, we have accumulated over decades all the, all the skills and expertise needed to solve these problems with a similar mindset, just different problem to solve. Thank you for your introduction to NOV and and your background. It is it is always fascinating to hear how what 
really hear one's journey through through the industry, whether it's all within one company as it is for you, or whether it is jumping from company to company, especially the 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 more senior roles and and how how you really get there. The as as you pointed out, we we are talking about the kind of that transfer of of information from the traditional oil and gas realm talking about NOV and how how you've started this low carbon solutions group the the thing that that jumps out to me is that you talked about offshore and onshore wind and solar and geothermal and mentioned subsea mining they I guess from my perspective and really from for many people, they may not really see the correlation there, but what you said a lot are are the skills. Mm-hmm. They're skills that transfer. Right. What I guess a a quick question, how how did you become involved in seeing all of these different parts mm. of the en- energy industry and and when we're talking about skills, I guess let's start jumping into what are some of those skills that that we keep alluding to? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. I think, look, there's uh, there's a bit that goes into who you are today, and you know what, how you've become, um, and uh, sort of become in this identity as an organization. I mean, and for us, NOV has been a a, a big offshore player in the oil and gas industry. And we've, I think, become really, really good at solving extremely complex problems and scaling them down to the size that's manageable um, so that we can deliver on time and on budget with um, equipment and projects and, and platforms that can deliver for many, many, many decades. And so, uh, you know, when you come from a sort of a, you know, what looks like to be a pure play uh, technology company in the offshore space. Um, it's not very straightforward how you can contribute to the energy transition. But I think what happened over the years, especially in the last, um, I want to say, 15, 20 years, um, you know, with shale becoming such a dominant um, a contributor to the energy mix, NOV had to go through what we're going in through today in the past. That transition wasn't, you know, transitions are something companies go through on a regular basis, you know, almost once every decade. And so uh, with a changing landscape, we had to adapt. And what was a $10 billion business from an offshore market for us became, you know, with, um, with, a, with the onset of shale, uh, became challenged, and we had to come up with smart ideas in how to kind of replace or complement um, the, uh, the the company's um, uh, revenue or asset or um, uh, customer base. And so, shale for us was one transition, and we quickly realized that you can't take what you have offshore and put it on land because one, it's too expensive. And 
to uh, it's uh, over-engineered for the problems that we have. And not all the time, it is a, it's a different application. So it's a different uh, market entirely. And so we, we went back and said, what can we do? What are the bottlenecks? And what we brought to the table was two things we always bring to the table in situations like these. And the one is technology and others innovation. And, and really both of them spur out from the people, uh, which I think is, is the dominant main asset in the entire equation. And so if, if we bring the, you know, we brought technology and innovation to the shale space and we contributed and shaped how shale is drilled, whether through walking rigs or uh, downhole equipment and extended reach capabilities and the fracking capabilities. And we still do that till date with innovation and technology. Going into the energy transition for us was an identical um, approach. What we did, and I'll tell you a little story, um, in, in 2020, in January 2020, we brought um, 30 or so executives from the organization um, who had something to do with non-oil and gas spaces um, or had some visibility of, a, of what could NOV do past oil and gas. And, and one thing, you know, we agreed to, to bring with us was an open mindset. And we said, if, you know, there's this thing going on in the world called energy transition, we've been doing some things in renewables for a few years, but um, what if we said, you know, we want to become a leader in the energy transition space? What would those spaces look like? And so we started a, with, you know, with a, big list of, of areas that uh, we felt made up the energy transition world uh, and could be areas for us in the long term where um, we could bring significant value. And as a technology company, you, you really want to uh, use your supply chain, you want to use your engineering technology, your, your expertise, your people you want to leverage what you have. You don't want to reinvent. We're not trying to get out of oil and gas by any means, but we're trying to leverage what we have and use what we can to support this new space. And so we we had these 20 verticals ranging from solar and wind to geothermal to uh, some forms of nuclear to aquaculture to subsea mining to a vast uh, uh, array of, of verticals we felt could become areas for us. And we we had some kind of a scorecard of which one of these made most sense and based on, you know, uh, experience that we've had, contributions that we've made, involvement of our customers in these spaces, readiness of the market, uh, commercial viability, technical readiness. And those scorecards sort of helped us determine what's the next step for us or pick the top, you know, the top three or the top 10 that made the most sense and kind of line them up on a, a timeline uh, that said, you know, in terms of cash flow generation, uh, here are the spaces that are the most promising that could be the earliest that could also end up funding the rest of the ones that are not commercially ready. And so keeping that 
you know, in, in mind, um, from there on, things become a lot easier because you know your decision making is based on business. And, you know, we could we could talk about hobbies all day and and about, you know, hydrogen uh, being a a, you know, the future of fuels in the in, in, in the coming 10 or 20 or 30 years. But the truth is, for us, hydrogen may not be the the one that uh, is going to generate cash flow the earliest. So, keeping that sort of um, flexible mentality and and lining up those verticals for us made made things easier. And 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 from there on, it was just a matter of putting teams together um, and exploring technology. And the, and the reason why I'm telling you this story is because that really shaped where we are today, what started as hobbies became um, self-sustainable business units that generate uh, uh, revenue that have their new customer bases um, that and others that are still forming in the pipeline. So uh, it's a journey is definitely what I would say. It's a, it's a process. And um, I'm, I'm I'm glad to say we started it early on and we have a lot, you know, in January 2020, we started with a long list of projects that we've done because we had been challenged five years earlier on what can we do to reduce LCOEs in solar and wind. And so uh, for us, it was, uh, it, was, it was not whether or not to get in, is how to get in. And, and once we've built that initial strategy, things, things rolled from there. Yeah, thank you for that explanation and i think that's it it's fascinating to think about how how the really the shale revolution ultimately for for nov was this transitionary time where where you had to mm-hmm. find your new place in in the market and how that prepared you for what we are now seeing as this as this new energy transition going from the fossil fuels and carbon emitting energies to these low carbon energies and and it's almost like NOV has seen it and they and and you're not you're not scared by it you are almost attacking it mm-hmm. whereas others are not yeah so there there were a few things you said in there that sounded like some interesting stories. You've mentioned offshore wind a few times and mm-hmm. you mentioned decreasing the LCOE or the levelized cost of electricity mm-hmm. for solar. Can you can you give a little bit more more on on what those projects were? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um we we made a so being aware, I think Probably should have also mentioned that earlier, but that the awareness of what's coming and and kind of being early in defining that vision uh, was critical for us, and that also not only defined our technology play, but also our corporate development strategy. Um, and so we went after companies or technologies or partnerships that made sense both in the oil and gas and the renewables or energy transition world. And with that came an acquisition of a company uh, we uh, added to the NOV family called Gusto MSC. Um, 
that designs um, jacking systems, offshore uh, platforms um, uh, for the oil and gas industry, uh, jackups and some submersibles. And that experience also came with the skill set that back then when we made the acquisition wasn't the prominent one. But what they also did was design uh, wind turbine installation vessels for the offshore wind space. And that, you know, from a de-bottlenecking perspective, coming in into that space, you know, we're an OEM uh, in the oil and gas space. Going into wind is tricky because you could go in as the OEM, but you're really competing with companies that have been doing it for many decades and you have a lot of catching up to do in a space that's already sort of been, uh, you know, the pie has been split more or less. The companies are known, it's matured. And so coming in with, uh, you know, another OEM is going to take a while. So we, we use something we had already, and that's, you know, designing these offshore platforms or vessels that, had um, had legs and, and and hydraulic jacking systems and uh, cranes and 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 that that helped us kind of make a strong in into the space. Um, and if you go around the world today, you'll find that uh, a vast majority of the installation vessels that are erecting offshore wind turbines are an NOV design uh, and have NOV kit on it. And I think that's very detrimental in kind of seeing where the puck is heading and aligning your um, your company's strategy in a way that's not reactive, but really planning when, before anybody was saying the word energy transition 20 times a day. Um, and, and that for us was uh, an end into everything else. Now that we have a leading position in one of the um, functions in putting up a um, a wind farm or wind park offshore. Uh, now we sort of have the ability to get into other spaces. And so we designed the jackets that those wind turbines sit on as well, or we actually fabricate them in, in Indonesia. Uh, and and we've, we've done a lot, a lot of those. Um, we, we're also working um, uh, on the floating wind aspect of things and, and not the turbine, but the foundation, the floater, the tri-floater is what we call it. And we've used our supply chain and our design expertise so that it uses the least amount of steel and the least amount of carbon footprint so that um, a, a floating offshore wind farm consumes um, uh, you know, is is the is the is the most reliable and the and the and the most economical as well. These things are expensive, and so when you have fifty to hundred of those floaters in one one place, it's a it's a lot. So we got to the point. You know, we've secured market leadership in in the installation vessel space. Uh, now we've been announced as the supplier of choice for one of the largest wind farms, uh, floating wind farms in the world. Um, uh, in the North Sea. Uh, and so we, we, you know, and that comes through experience and expertise. We, you know, a lot of companies walking into that space had to build and design 
uh, or design, build, and, and prototype these floaters. We didn't have to. When was the last time we had to build a prototype or a demonstrator, which costs many millions of dollars in oil and gas? We usually just did it and we send it out and it worked and we brought it back and we did some tweaks and it worked better. And so for us, building a demonstrator didn't necessarily make a lot of sense because we, we've done these things. And, you know, whether it's a floater for an offshore uh, wind tower or, um, or a semi-sub, that's, that's stuff that we, we do every day. The engineering doesn't change. The problem is identical. It's how we apply the engineering to a new application uh, and a new environment so that it, it functions slightly differently. And kind of shifting on to, to what we've done on land, um, on, for onshore wind, we, we also looked at it from an from a identical angle. We said, look, it's a, it's a commoditized space. Um, we're going to try to find a way to really bring value and value that is not imitatable. Um, you can, you can, you know, and, and that's what NOV has done is taken these big problems and found solutions to them. Uh, and, and what we've seen in, in onshore wind is that, uh, you know, clearly if you get greater wind resources, the lower your LCOE becomes or your levelized cost of energy. And by reducing mm-hmm. your LCOE, uh, the economics of a wind farm becomes, uh, you know, stand on their own feet. You don't require any subsidies um, or it just becomes more attractive to do what you're doing. And with a big chunk of the U.S. not accessible to wind technology because wind resources are at greater heights than the average tower height, we thought to ourselves, okay, what's keeping us from building taller towers? Well, the answer to that was because towers get wider and wider at the base, the taller they got because it's a conic shape at the end of the day. Um, the width of that bottom piece of the tower became problematic and the transport from location to wind farm, uh, from manufacturing location to the wind farm. And so we, we said, well, we, we build and design, we design and build rigs that travel their entire lives, mobile rigs that walk. We design uh, the move of the rig so that it happens with, you know, very little... Uh, knowledge of that trajectory and its design process, but so that it makes the most flexibility and quickest move we can. And I don't know if you've seen some of those onshore, uh, the, the land rigs in the Middle East, those, those things are massive. And, and look, mm-hmm. they make, they make their, their, they make a move every month or two. And so if you've seen those, those, those wind turbine blades or big, tower sections traveling across the highway that's the only time that uh units gonna make a a long trajectory like that for the rest of its life it's planted in its ground Mm -hmm. and so we 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 said well how about we you know that bottom piece of the tower how about if if we're able to make it on location then we get around the the challenge of getting it under bridges and and turned and through tunnels. And the investment we've made was in a company that does just that. And uh, we're in the process of building our first um, uh, wind farm 
uh, with with this technology. So really enabling and changing how we do things so that we can um, enable greater access to wind technology where it doesn't where it doesn't exist. And at the end of the day, really, it's how do we make it more economical? How do we get faster to um, to technology? So. So I'm curious with that. That that's a very great explanation on the on the whole process, and I think it's it is it's so important to really make that connection of the fact that NOV's been building offshore platforms for for I I think it would be correct to say you've been building offshore platforms longer than offshore wind has been an energy source. Mm-hmm. So you've already got a a full a full lifetime of offshore platform building compared mm-hmm. to anybody who's in offshore wind and has been there since the beginning. So I think that's important to to realize those those transferable skills are are there and it really is a matter of of looking at the problem and breaking it down into those individual steps, as you said earlier, taking a a a large problem, breaking it into those bite-sized steps, yeah. so that you can produce a solution. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, taking taking the you know the developer's perspective at all time, we you know, engineers like to come up with cool ideas, but not always do those ideas make financial sense. And so if we always understand the business and really dig deep into the problem and what are the repercussions of the economics behind making those changes, then it becomes a lot easier to discern between a good idea and uh, just a cool idea. Hmm. Yep. On that note, I've got a, I've got just a, a question that popped up in my mind. When you're talking about building the bases on site for for onshore wind, why is that something? Because that it seems it seems very intuitive. If that is the main issue on getting your your stacks higher, why don't you just build it on site since you can't take it on the highway? Why has that not been done before? You know, there's there's market readiness. Uh, I guess you know, tower heights have been increasing, but they've reached a plateau because there was a ton of space in Texas and in other spaces to, to capture that those wind resources. But at some point, uh, you reach the edge of uh, capacity, and you're like, okay, where else can I install these things? And OEMs in the wind space have also kept up. Uh, they've been working on developing wind turbines that are bigger uh, for the onshore space, not just for offshore. So those are growing, they're developing, they're becoming more economical. Not always did we have a you know five megawatt uh, onshore wind turbine. And, and that's, that's what you want when you go that high. You know, the average has been two, two and a half, maybe three. And so uh, there's, you know, just like the Squid Game uh, series that came out 
some people were saying the guy has been presenting his idea for the last 10 years. But 10 years ago, Netflix wasn't what Netflix is today. And had it been out 10 years ago, maybe it wasn't going to be the big hit it is. And so I think the environment is ready enough today for us to do something like that. The appetite for risk, we've ironed out the rest of the stuff that are involved, other risks involved in building a, a wind turbine. I think uh, if anybody wants to take, uh, you know, do things slightly more differently today, then um, I think a technology like this is ripe. Especially that there's, there's really, you know, from a risk-taking standpoint, there's, there's not much being taken because at the end of the day, what you're doing is just slightly shifting where you do things. It's a supply chain move more than more than a technology move. You can you can spout a weld pipe um, anywhere if you can build a smart enough mobile manufacturing plant, and that's that's where we're going with it. Hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. That is. It's a it's a good a good note to remember that it is also just the the basics of the economy supply and demand and and consumer appetite the I I think on that you you also mentioned seabed mining and I think that's a mm. that is something that in my mind is is more futuristic yeah and right now we've been talking about applications that are active going in right now what about seabed mining in terms of this what we've been discussing in term i guess let's talk about it with transferable skills let's talk about it with kind of technology readiness level and and maybe consumer appetite and where we are today with something like that and how NOV is looking at something like seabed mining? Yeah, good good question. I think um, you're right. Seabed, deep, deep sea mining or deep sea mineral extraction for us. And for those who don't know what this is, I'll probably maybe give a little bit of uh, why this makes sense. Um, what uh, So it's deep sea mining is going after polymetallic nodules, little potato-sized rock-looking um, uh, elements that are sitting on the seabed, literally, with no um, drilling, except some may be within a few feet, but uh, for the most part, they're sitting on the seabed. And those things are extremely uh, are present at extremely high water depths, and uh, they uh, form under extremely high pressures, um, some of them through volcanic uh, reactions or um, you know, heat and cold interaction. And so you end up with this great mix of minerals that are required for your um, uh, battery industry, whether it's EVs or it's phones or it's storage for your wind and solar farms, you're going to need batteries to store energy. And so those poly polymetallic nodules contain a lot of the uh, lithium, zinc, manganese, cobalt, all the critical minerals needed for for batteries and you know where where the justification is the majority of these uh, critical minerals come from uh, remote regions around the world China dominates the space uh, uh, Congo uh, Chile are, are the big players 
in um, in, in critical minerals. And so, uh, from a um, supply chain sufficiency and uh, you know, if you if you're gonna be an American company building the largest uh, EV company in the world, you want your supply chain to be controlled locally. And so while the Seabed uh, Association, Seabed International Association, um, who controls sort of the regulation for what we do in seabeds and how we interact with the ecosystems, is not quite ready with the regulation and how we do that, companies have been looking into how to get into this space. For us to tell you that we are putting all our baskets in deep sea mining, I'd, I'd be lying. Um, but we do see it as a promising area for a company like us, who, again, ha- has been designing, building, and kitting uh, drill ships that go and drill wells in extremely deep seas and extremely harsh environments. Um, those are identical environments. And guess what's going to go and extract those polymetallic nodules? It's the drill ships that we've built a few years ago that are parked today without enough deep water activity. And so the retrofitting of a drill ship um, that has a riser technology or riser equipment that uh, we've also probably provided and um, is going to be needed in uh, deep sea mineral extraction or it's the um, well site flow control, mud management, circulation management equipment, all of that's already existent there. Um, or all the, uh, the, um, the cranes that are needed and the processing systems that needed on location, that's stuff that's identical. We're not having to reinvent ourselves to retrofit a drill ship to a deep sea excavation ship. Those things are going to live offshore. They all they're going to do is going to uh, suck the, the 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 critical minerals off the seabed, and a feeder vessel is going to come and take the load off and and go and and process it somewhere else. And so, we all we need is just to focus, provide a smart solution to to this problem, and say here's how we can do this economically. And so for us. While this may be long in the distance, it's one that's uh, I think is a fairly easy win because um, it doesn't change much to our engineers and our supply chain and our way of thinking and how to how to implement on it. So that's kind of where we sit on the deep sea extraction um, that uh, that that's happening. I, I would say for us. Uh, carbon capture is probably the other one besides wind that uh, we believe we also bring great value. That's probably closer in in, in timeline to today. Um, policy is maturing. Technology is already there for carbon capture. There's other types of uh, carbon capture technology that's also uh, coming up. And so because we've been treating gas and sweetening gas, um, for many decades, I mean, I wish I had a counter of how many tons of gas we've processed over the years. 
um, capturing carbon from a flue gas isn't very different from separating H2S from your methane production. And so bringing that identical mindset of how can I do this safely, cheaply, repetitively um, to deal with CO2 uh, becomes another space for us where we can, again, without too much shifting and identity changing, uh, get into. And I think by 2030, the goal to meet Paris Accord is to have about 1.5 gigatons of CO2 being captured yearly. And if we're actually going to meet that, then that means you're going to need about 700 capture plants on an, with an average of two, two and a half million tons a year of cap, CO2 equivalent capture capacity. With 700 facilities being built in the next 10 years, I think there's a, there's a lot that... Um, we can be part of, especially, like I said, we've, we've designed and, and did gas processing for a long time. And, and look, it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. It's, it looks like a new problem to solve, and it really is, because it's got its own intricacies and it's got different ways of tackling it. But, uh, but truly a fascinating way for us to flex our muscle as an industry and as NOV uh, and, and get into the, the you know, the, the energy transition world without feeling that we've um, had to reinvent ourselves. And it's uh, it's, it's real joy to, to find these parallels because it works and we've, and we've done it. We just need to get creative all over again and how to, how to implement it and deploy it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think it, it's, it is very clear as you explain it, that, that, that transfer of knowledge and really the the transferring of skills to something like the the deep sea mining and something like carbon capture technology is really really it's just cleaning up the the air you're pulling out co2 as opposed to something else in the gas processing i think that's yeah it's very clear how that that transition can occur for for a company with with very it's very specific skill sets that that have done very well in the current current climate if you will but they they're skill sets that are going to be needed for the future yeah they're just going to look a little bit different Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's one of those things that that whenever i hear about the energy transition or talk to people about it one thing that we we always talk about is how do you how do you go and and become a a green energy worker well i think it as you point out it's it's most important to get to the skills that you have and to apply those skills to maybe find a different end product yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're right. And sometimes it's the same product. Sometimes it's a it's a modified product, uh, and sometimes it's not a product. It's a process, and and there's a big difference. And so yep. the, the that flexibility there's 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 a mindset that we all need to bring to the table and say wherever I sit in the oil and gas industry, 
there's probably something that I can do in Azure Transition that I can bring and transfer. I just need to learn how to deploy and implement that and add value. Yep. With that idea, I think we've, if it's not clear yet, I think that it's fair to say that NOV is one of those those early and continuing success stories of of a company that has set set yourselves up well to not only survive the energy transition but to thrive through it. I I've enjoyed the the examples that we've discussed here mm-hmm. and although I do say they they may be very specific for for NOV and for somebody who has a a long history in say offshore offshore platforms or offshore production. Mm-hmm. So let's just be a little a little broader and think if if it's not clear for anybody, what are some quick ways that say oil company XYZ or an individual can start their own energy transition journey? Yeah, uh, I think sort of going back to, to the identity and, and who we are and what we've done, I think it's important to get to a certain level of acceptance of what are we good at and what do we want to do. You don't need to be uh, in offshore wind, for instance, to be in the energy transition or to adapt to this new world. But you can get excellent at what you do wherever you are in whatever you do. And some some companies have chosen to become the best producers of oil and gas, the cleanest barrel that can be produced at the cheapest price. And that's being part of the energy transition because your product's still going to be needed, except it's going to be a bit more of a competitive space. And so what you could choose to do is either be a pure play and dig deeper and and say, I'm claiming this space uh, because I'm going to be the best at it or choose a sort of a, or maybe and or um, take a route of the diversification and find ways you can, you can actually use your skill set somewhere else. It's not easy for everyone to find four or five or 10 verticals where you can bring value. Uh, we just happen to be in a position where we've had, experience and we've seen things evolve at an early time Um, but where you sit today makes a lot of relevance to where you can go Um, resources are not infinite and investments are also uh, finite and you gotta choose where to go based on what you're good at you gotta leverage what you have use what's in your pocket um because at the end of the day, if you're not able to create a sustainable business and can create uh, shareholder value and, you know, whatever that new business you're going to do, and we've seen companies sort of spin off or carve out their energy transition groups, if you can't let it live on its own, it's not going to live for very long. Um, you, could, you, could, uh, you could support it. Uh, you could have, you know, your oil and gas business fund it. But at some point, it's going to stand on its own feet. And and keeping that in mind, for us, at some point, we're going to have to make tough choices and say, it's time to abandon this route and keep going in the other four. 
or we got to change routes for this, even though we've already spent a ton of resources there. And that's okay. It's okay to make these difficult decisions, but keeping in mind that there's no emotional attachment to ideas, there's no emotional attachment to a product, um, but real, a true business uh, understanding of how, you know, some people complain about this space being, um, you know, living on subsidies. It's okay. Subsidies are good. That's how our industry got to where it is. That's how wind became to where, where it's become. Um, and so it's, it's going to keep going. Um, but at one point we have to establish a commercial viability for the direction we're going and some level of differentiation. Cause you're, if you're not, you know, you could either bring differentiation or cost leadership in other way, it's a form of differentiation. So, um, that's what I would say for, for those who are still picking their, their road into the energy transition. Yes. Thank you for that. So let's jump into a few final questions. Mm. The The first one, what is the most important book you've ever read? Oh, man. Um, there's, uh, there, there's a good list of books. Uh, I just... I just finished my MBA, so uh, there's a lots, uh, lots of lots of books that uh, made it made me a tiny bit smarter uh, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, but but I think one one book that's relevant to our conversation today is the is the New Map by uh, Daniel Jurgen, um, and, and and I think that kind of exemplifies where the energy transition is headed and how we. Uh, we can we can adapt and adopt this this new new way of living, uh, so to speak. Um, I do I do enjoy my my Audible and my podcast, so that's that's where most of my content's been coming lately, and uh, and so uh, I try to use my time traveling to listen as much, as many of these as I can. I like it. My my. Uh key secret is listening to everything at double speed and then trying to find time to read before I go to bed when I shut off all the electronics. Yeah. It's the only way I get any reading done. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good on the look on the personal development. I'm a, I'm a big believer that, uh, we're, we're students for, uh, for the entirety of our lifetimes. And there are three or four books that, um, have made a, Small, small change and an impact on me. One's called The Humble Inquiry by Edgar Schein. Uh, really good book. Uh, just about, you know, working with people. Other ones, um, uh, listening the forgotten skill. Um, and and th- those are things that help us get our, you know, get better at what we do, be more impactful, influential. Because uh, at the end of the day, if you can't build that trust, I think... Uh, any business idea can can fall fall apart. So, um, mm-hmm. some some good books that have gone through lately. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So the next question: When will we be net zero as a society? Oh yeah. Uh, if if I knew that uh, that answer, you know, you know, you know what would happen, right? <laughs> uh, I I think uh, look, everybody's uh, calling the you know. 2050 uh, mark being their their net zero. Um, I was listening to 
to, 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 to something a couple of days ago that um, I think r- resonates well. There's, you know, to, to get to net zero, our, the consumerism of human beings has to drop quite significantly. And I think uh, that collides head to head with economies having to survive. If we stop being the consumers we are, and if we stop buying all the useless stuff that we buy during the season, then the economy cannot stand on its feet. And so it's a it's a big dilemma, you know, because it, it takes a lot of uh, emission and energy to produce these things. Um, and so... I think I think there's a there's a mix of you know doing things more sustainably, more responsibly. Um, uh, Saudi just called uh, 2060 as being their net zero, which, which which I think is a really smart move because they'll wait until 2050 to watch if everybody else is meeting their targets, so that they know <laughs> if they have to meet their targets by 2060 or not. Uh, but, but I think we're heading in the right direction. It's, um, it's, it's a transition. It's not going to happen in two or five or ten years. Uh, it's a long way. We just need to make economic sense out of it. It cannot, you know, the first people to subsidize, you know, whoever's calling 2050 is subsidizing the energy transition before even the government does because they're the ones spending, they're cashing in in 2050. But until between now and then, they're spending the money to reduce their emissions and to capture mm-hmm. their emissions, etc. Yeah. So they're taking from their bottom line to fund the energy transition. But it cannot be that way all the time. That's going to drive everything, uh, all prices up. And, and I think it's just not sustainable. Uh, otherwise, the bubble will burst. And, and yeah. I don't think anybody wants that. So. Uh, it'll be a while before that happens. Oil and gas will stick around for a long time. We'll just learn how to get better at it and uh, and build a balance in our lives that uh, that makes sense and that reduces our overall emissions. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting take on it and in that it is, in order to be net zero, one thing we don't talk about is the amount of consumption and, as you point out, consumerism that does need to be scaled back Mm -hmm. and then the ripple effects of that on the economy that is something that that we don't really discuss and Mm -hmm. and it is something that that we need to we need to have as open dialogue as part Mm -hmm. of the energy transition and really pushing for net zero but that's a another podcast for another day yep the last question that I have for you is, do you have any questions for me? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I guess I can think of one. How, how awesome does it feel to have your own podcast? Oh, that is... It, it does feel good to have my own podcast. I think okay. it, from that, from that angle or I guess the the reasoning behind it is because I I get to talk to a lot of different folks and a lot of a lot of people who maybe would not return my emails mm. and would not would not give me any time of day if it was just me emailing them asking to have an hour long conversation but in this seat 
telling them that everybody else gets to hear our conversation, mm-hmm. it I think it opens more doors. And so it is a it is a a selfish labor of love that I get to learn a lot and get to talk to a lot of different people that I don't think I I would get to if I did not have this platform. I love it. It's great. Well, Asad, thank you for being on the show with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and and I'm excited to continue to see the great work that NOV does now and in the future. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Joe, appreciate you having on your show. Uh, congratulations again. And uh, I look forward to uh, exciting conversations about the topic. Well, thank you for that. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit us at OGGN.com. And if you're into free stuff like I am, go visit the Canon co-working space and mention OGGN. They'll give you a free day pass so you can check out the, the space there and have a new place to work. I enjoy working from there while I'm in Houston, and it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story you want to share, send me an email or connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.